When the whole world was introduced to the Turden Pin children, we were all in shock as the news broke about what the abuse looked like behind the closed door of the Paris home. What these children went through day in and day out was appalling. How could parents do these things to their very own children? So many questions flew because no one could imagine that these two were treating their children in this manner. We watched as the six underage children went into the foster system and the adult children were left to learn about the world that happened around them. They didn't know basic care. They didn't know what it meant to search for a job, to find a place to live, to pay bills, or even how to bank. Their normal was living a life that was justified by the Bible. Their parents would tell them they could punish them as they see fit per the Bible. Children were to listen. They were to do as they were told, and they were to follow the rules laid out by their mother and father to a T. Otherwise, there would be consequences to breaking the rules. The only child to come out of the house unscathed was nearly two-year-old baby Jana. Louise pictured a life with a dozen children. She was going to have as many kids as possible and be the best mother to them, far better than her own. What Louise didn't realize was the man she called her husband was morphing into a man drunk with absolute, total control of his children. When Louise punished her children, she often turned to David for guidance. Was what she was saying what David wanted her to say? Was she reiterating the rules as he laid down? She traded one abuser for another. But with the large income he was bringing home, she too turned into her mother and would turn a blind eye to what was happening, all in an effort to hang on to the one thing everyone dreams of having, money. Cults are defined by its unusual religious, spiritual, and philosophical beliefs and rituals. This all fits the bill of David and Louise Turnpin's way of raising a family. Where some think of cults like those of Georgetown or Waco or polygamous cults like the Mormon Fundamentalist or the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Never do you think of a cult rising up from a family. Many have speculated that those that have significantly large families have a weird way of viewing the world. But when you have a family like the Turpins rise in infamy, you look at those family with nearly a dozen kids and you wonder if they are capable of doing the very same thing or are you reading too much into it the more we learn about david and louise and their abnormal parenting skills the more we see the structure being built for david turpin to lead his very own cult and his wife she's right there with him every step the way. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we continue exploring what happened behind the closed doors of David and Louise Turpin's home. Thirteen, all of which were the children of David and Louise, and the amount of neglect and abuse shocked investigators because one was nearly 29 years old and looked as though she was no more than 15 or 16 years old. 
and all seven of the 13 were adult age. The only one to come out of the home not exhibiting any signs of abuse or neglect was the nearly two-year-old baby Jana. So join me as we welcome the birth of each child to only watch as those who were to protect them slowly turn each one of their children into a victim of poor parenting, extreme discipline, and cult-level manipulation. David and Louise may not be recognized as a cult leader, but they were that, and so much more. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of child abuse, sexual abuse, torture, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds, and welcome to the second episode in our series finale of season four. We just have a few quick reminders to get to tonight before we get started. Patreon is up and running, and from there you can listen to this episode completely ad-free. You can tune in to the bonus show, Librarian After Dark, where we talk about true crime that is making headlines today. And I know that there are only a few episodes up, but this summer... That will improve as I will only be airing the bonus show all summer long. So if you need your TTCL fix, head over there and sign up for the tier that best suits your nerd needs. You can always support the show with a one-time donation over at the truecrimelibrarian.com. While there, take a look around and maybe snag some of that TTCL merch that's still available. Finally, don't forget that you can always support the show without a dime leaving your pocket by hitting that like button, reviewing, recommending, and sharing the love on social media. The show has grown so much, and it's all thanks to nerds like you. So a great big thank you to all of you, and now to what you all came here for, the true crime. 
Last week, we introduced you to David and Louise Turnpin, and we went significantly deep into their family history because the point of abuse began very early for both David and Louise. David suffered far less. His was more like he was very strict with his religious beliefs. His parents harped on those. His grandfather was a self-professed priest of the Church of Jesus Christ, and his he came from a father who was physically abusive and neglected his children on a daily basis. All of this set up who David Turpin turned into day. And Louise, she suffered her own abuse at the hands of her grandfather, who had issues with keeping his hands to himself and would perform what he called tight hugs. It wasn't until he was caught by his wife raping Louise that the sexual abuse came to light. Unfortunately for his number one victim, nothing ever came from it, and she resented her entire family for allowing it to happen. Well, on February 3rd of 1985, Louise found her way out when she married the much older 24-year-old David. Come the fall of 1987, Louise was pregnant with her and David's first child, Jennifer Dawn Turpin. And if you'll remember, last episode, um, the Turpins got transferred out of their Fort Worth home into Bria, California, where this is where Louise became pregnant. And according to Louise's family, she had always had a dream of having or wanting a large family with at least a dozen children. And since that, she was just shy of her two-year anniversary with David. She was well on her way to making her dream of a large family come true. On July 28th of 1988, Louise gave birth to her first child, a daughter she named Jennifer Dawn. Louise was in love with her. David took his wife and daughter everywhere within the first few months of her birth, including David and Louise's favorite place on earth, Disneyland. For each scenic place David took his daughter, pictures were snapped and sent back to the Robinetti family. In Christmas of 1988, Louise sent money so that her mother Phyllis and her siblings, her, her sisters, could come out to California for a visit. With all of her family there now, Louise and David needed to show them how lavish their life could be. So they paid for these, you know, long, expensive day trips. They went to Disney. They went to Universal. They went to the Hollywood sign, to the Walk of Fame. All those high tourist places that you think of when you want to visit California. David and Louise took Phyllis and, the, and Louise's sisters to all of them, and they footed the bill for every penny. Louise was determined to prove to her mother, and I guess everyone else that doubted her marrying David, that it was the right choice. So paying for these lavish things were all a, quote, I told you so moment. Louise was pulling further and further away from her family at the same time, even though she was working to show them that she had made the right decision. Maybe convincing others and possibly even convincing herself in the process. 
It was a way out of the sexual abuse she suffered from as her grandfather Taylor continued to abuse the female family members. The Turpins wouldn't stay in California long before David was transferred back to Fort Worth for his job. In 1990, David and Louise purchased a home on Roddy Drive. It was a beautifully spacious four-bedroom, two-bath home, and it would allow them to continue to grow their family. Much of the possessions they owned back in California were left in a storage unit and were sold off after David and Louise stopped paying for the unit. So basically, Louise was free to start over again. Louise had a serious addiction to shopping, to keeping up with the Joneses' style of have to have all these materialistic things. They would publish a few times in the hometown newspaper the section called Keeping in Touch. And one of their very first photos was Jennifer celebrating her birthday. Again, Doing this allowed her to brag about her lifestyle. It allowed her to continue to convince that this was the right move, both for her family and herself. David earned a six-figure salary that wasn't anything that either of them could not buy. It also let Louise not to have to go out and get a job. So she was left to become extremely reckless with the family's finances. Her family would fly back and forth once a year from Princeton, West Virginia to Fort Worth, Texas. And this happened for approximately a decade. And David and Louise footed each and every single trip. On February 3rd, 1992, Louise gave birth to her second child, a son she named Joshua David. It was after Josh's birth that David and Louise decided from there on out, all of their children would have biblical names that began with the letter J. Very similar to the famous parents of 19 Kids and Counting. And we would not know about the, the Duggars until much later when reality television took hold of the nation and suddenly... We were along for the ride for everybody's personal life. Not long after Joshua was born, Louise and David had to file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Between all the generous trips for the family, excessive shopping trips, gambling trips that would sometimes put David and Louise in danger of not having gas money to make the trip home, and all of these credit cards. I think I read somewhere, don't hold me to it, I think I read somewhere that in one of the Chapter 7 bankruptcies, 27 credit cards were listed, all of them being maxed out. Louise seemed to keep her and David's financial status a secret this first time around because she didn't want anybody to know that life was not exactly as she had told them. They did not have to worry about anything going on because the children weren't at risk of saying anything, so they never had to explicitly slip them down and tell them not to talk about it. They weren't old enough to remember what was going on. Even after filing bankruptcy, Louise continued to spend way too much. When her mothers and sisters would fly in, it didn't seem to cause her to bat an eye to pay for whatever it is. 
Phyllis and her daughters arrived in July of 1993 to a very pregnant Louise with her third child. And she was still on her way at keeping her and her family's money troubles locked up tight. We don't talk about it. And I'm going to, you know, just drip you in gifts. That's the kind of thing that Louise thought during these visits. On November 3rd of 1993, Jessica Louise was welcomed into the world by those she would call mother and father and two siblings that would later be the ones she would rely on to help her survive this world she was born into. In August of 1994, the young Jennifer started first grade. She was older than most of her classmates because she started school a couple of years later and in the state of Texas at the time, kindergarten was not required. So she could enter at the first grade level. There was a level of control and discipline that was starting to happen inside of the Turpin home with Jennifer and her brother. They were taught to learn these extremely strict rules and they believed it was normal. All of this was just now starting to take shape. Jennifer was unfortunately picked on by those in her class. She was frail in comparison to those around her. Her personal hygiene was lacking to say the least. She wore the same outfit to school day in and day out. She never brushed her hair and she never bathed properly because in her house, if she was clean above the wrist, she was accused of playing in the water. So to try and avoid maybe the as much of the bullying to come to her, Jennifer would make makeshift ponytails out of foil that she would find in candy bars. It was a way to keep that unkept dirty hair out of her face and gave her a semi-groomed look. The kids who were in her class would later remember her being genuinely nice and somewhat shy socially, and kids figured that for the most part she came from a poor family, but they were wrong because Jennifer's parents made a ton of money. They couldn't be further from the truth because inside of her closet she had these expensive nice dresses. Some all still had their price tags on. Some were too small for Jennifer to wear but other were within her size range still. She was forced to come to school in overalls and a dirty purple and white t-shirt or purple and white shirt. On December 17th, 1995, Louise and David welcomed their fourth child, a son who they would name Jonathan Wayne. Another birth announcement went into the paper saying how he was welcomed by a happy family. Following the birth of Jonathan, the Turnpin family traveled from Fort Worth to Princeton, West Virginia. This was this way so both sides of the family could meet all of the grandchildren. Louise dressed the children all the same, matching outfits down to the shoes they wore. Also notable was that the way that all the children who could walk acted. They lined up before going out the door, before climbing in their car. Everyone noticed the children were far above the well-behaved status, and this was most likely due to the military rule going on. But with David and Louise paying for anything and everything that happened in Princeton, neither family questioned their parenting styles thanks to them flaunting their wealth. 
During this visit, Louise's youngest sister was looking for somewhere to spend her summer. Hopefully so that, so she asked if she could go back to Texas with David and Louise so that maybe she could spend that time getting to know her sister and who she had become since she had left the family to marry David. David and Louise quickly agreed and allowed her to come live with them. On the trip home from Princeton, Louise's sister Elizabeth sat in the back of the vehicle with her nieces and nephews. Just before hitting the Louisiana-Texas border, David pulled from the interstate and stopped at a local casino. In the Pentecostal faith, gambling was frowned on. It was a sin in their religion, and Elizabeth could not believe that her sister was falling into something she was raised to never take a part of. Elizabeth and the kids waited hours in the car of a parking garage for the casino until David and Louise came back. For most of it, the children slept. This seemed to speed up the time that mom and dad were away. When David finally came back to the car, he wasn't there to truly trek on the well-being of his children and young sister-in-law. No, he came back to rant to the fact that his wife was in there gambling all of the family's money away, and he was concerned that she would take all of it and they wouldn't be able to pay for gas to get them home. Think of making a hundred grand in today's market and how far you could stretch that. Now multiply that by 10. That would be the level that David was making money on in comparison to the cost of living in 1995. Louise is gambling that much money, leaving them with maybe $20, maybe $50 for gas to return to Fort Worth. That was the level of gambling that she was doing. And frankly, she was horrible at it. Elizabeth was excited to get to know her older sister again, and she thought that moving in would bring them closer. Instead, she witnessed her sister and brother-in-law in the early stages of abuse, neglect, and manipulation of their children. There was no tucking the children in at night. They didn't love on their children. There was no hugs. There was no comforting them. There was nothing. Who David and Louise were were not two people who should be parents of four children. At dinner time, Louise would call each child down one at a time. Each child would come into the dining room. They would face their mother, they would look her in the eye, and they would smile until they were told to sit. Once sitting, they sat perfectly still until Louise instructed them to eat the food that was on the plate. Once that child finished, Louise would dismiss them with the instruction to send down the next child who would go through the same steps over and over. The children were instructed not to talk to their aunt unless, unless told otherwise, Elizabeth was instructed not to talk to the children unless David or Louise approved of it first. David and Louise were slowly starting to push their rules and boundaries onto Elizabeth. There were several times that Elizabeth said that when she would go to take a shower, she liked to shut the bathroom door and lock it. Well, Louise got into the habit of popping the lock with a wire coat hanger, and then she and David would stare at Elizabeth as she showered. Even worse, they made her get out of the shower and dry off in front of them. They often laughed at the way she was developing, but 
when Elizabeth became upset, they would say, oh, it's all in good fun. This is not good fun. I don't, this is not okay. And by any means. But it's sexual abuse. This is sexual abuse. Just because there was no touching going on doesn't mean that they weren't doing something they shouldn't be. Elizabeth should not have gone through what she went through. And it was at the hands of her sister, who was also a victim of sexual abuse. Elizabeth was too with her own grandfather. She did the same things that happened to Louise. Louise was now doing her own form of it. David got to the point that he didn't want Elizabeth and Louise to be alone together. So they weren't allowed to go out and do things on their own. Anything that the sisters wanted to go and do, David needed to be with them in, in their presence at all time. David had a temper, as did Louise, either flying off the handle if he had heard that the two did something without him present or what have you. David's temper put him as what we would call a leader, and Louise was there as his second command. Their teachings were radical interpretations of the Pentecostal faith, all of which were conditioning their children into being absolutely obedient of their, quote, mother and father. And Elizabeth was there to witness it as it all began. Experts weighed in on both David and Louise's behavior following their arrest, and the abuse started coming to light throughout the years. This level of elaborate rules and punishments are borderline cult-like. Something that I mentioned before, both sides of the family had a history of taking certain teachings to the extreme levels. Both David and Louise were susceptible to repeating that behavior. It was all about power, control, domination. This is per Rick Ross, an expert on cults. He founded the Cult Education Institute. Rick has had time to look at in depth at the abuse that went on when it started to form here on Roddy Drive. Where these two perfected the rules and corporal punishments for what would happen when a child broke the law in place. All of this was forming into who David and Louise were when they were arrested. Elizabeth obtained a job while living with the Turpins in Fort Worth, and Louise insisted to drive her back and forth from her job. Up until Louise found out that she broke one of the rules that Louise and David laid in place for her. She was to have absolutely no friends, no telling her co-workers where the family lived. No one was to call home under any circumstances. She was not to have a boyfriend. Well, Elizabeth broke that rule, and she often ate lunch with a male co-worker. Her sister, Louise, found out. And the punishment for breaking the rule was she would be kicked out of the home. So that day that Louise found out that her sister's friend, that her sister had been eating lunch with her friend multiple times, Louise failed to show back up to pick her up after her shift, and Elizabeth ended up having to sleep on a bench after multiple calls going to the home went unanswered. For three days and nights, Elizabeth slept and worked in the same clothing. She wouldn't be allowed to return to her home until she threatened the Turpins with calling the police. Then finally, she was able to come and collect her things. This would be the last two 
last time these two would ever live together. Elizabeth would eventually go on to marry a man and recover from what she had countered in the two to three short months that she lived with David and Louise. On May 21st of 1997, Louise gave birth to their fifth child, Joy Donna, a little girl. Another birth announcement went into the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and three months later, Jennifer was on to start second grade, and the bullying was going to be ramped up for her because Jennifer's personal hygiene didn't improve in the months of the summer break. She also seemed to have developed a really bad habit during the time away. And I don't know if it was because she was so dirty or if it was something that she was seeing around the home and thought was normal. Jennifer often scratched or touched her private area. It would eventually lead to her going to the principal's office for the behavior, and it only fueled the humiliation to continue. I, you, you know, unfortunately, at this point, the children were being told when they could bathe, and most of the times, it would be a year that would go by before they were allowed to take a shower. As a young child going through the public school system, not bathing on a regular is completely humiliating. And then the, if just, it makes my skin crawl that they would not let this poor baby go and take a shower. It just, ugh, I hate it so much. When Jennifer's class experienced an outbreak of lice and all the kids, they, the fuel went from her, not her being dirty and her, you know, inappropriately touching herself. Now it was, she was patient zero because she was dirty. Lice come from dirty people. We all know now lice actually come from clean hair and prefer to be in a very clean environment. It's the only way for them to thrive. I'm not saying it's not possible that Jennifer was, wasn't, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible that Jennifer was the patient zero to the lice outbreak. If there was a way to trace that back to a specific kid, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm, I just, I think because all of the bullying was already directed towards her, it, the kids and, and frankly, the adults just pointed it out in Jennifer was ridiculed for being that. And Jennifer was living a life where she was ridiculed at home and ridiculed at school. There was not a safe place for her to go at this point. On June 15, 1998, Louise and David welcomed their sixth child together. And again, they announced the birth in the newspapers. Five brothers and sisters welcomed their youngest sibling home all to portray a perfect home life instead of the one that they were all living in. The birth of a sixth child meant that the Turpins once again drove to Princeton to show off their ever-growing family. But for Louise, the trip was anything but. Many speculate for one reason or another that the trip triggered some of the memories of the sexual abuse she suffered 
and emotionally she just could not handle all the the flood of them all and it was just you know all around a bad trip the turpins would leave to go back to their fort worth home and they would never return to princeton again and they would no longer fund the robinetti family trips to come and visit them cutting their families out of their lives in this manner only allowed them the two to get even more control in way more evil in the punishments that they dished out there was no one around to witness the severity. As Christmas approached, Louise and Elizabeth were on speaking terms, and Louise was a little more loose-lipped with her and David's finances during this time. They again were facing Chapter 7 bankruptcy. But don't worry, because she was out maxing out all of their credit cards and buying the children all these clothes and toys, enough that they would have things in the future but don't worry because when we file for bankruptcy they would get to keep all of the stuff they bought on credit and the courts would write off their debt except for their home so they would lose their home and then they have to have something they put up for collateral which means they have to make a monthly payment for so long until they're out of whatever the court ordered one year, two years, whatever. In Elizabeth's eyes, her sister was stealing. She couldn't believe that she was talking like this. You know, she was just slack-jawed because what do you say to someone who is boasting about filing for Chapter 7 bankruptcy but before everything went into place, I'm going to go buy everything that I can think of on the credit cards. When Elizabeth brought this up and the way she was viewing what her sister was telling her, Louise became angry and she slammed the phone down and hung up on her. In the spring of 1999, the bank foreclosed on Roddy Drive and with their family's eviction from the home, Jennifer would never return to school. David decided that it would be best to homeschool his children. And once again, he isolated the children to the point that no one on the outside could see the level of control David had over his family and the level of abuse that he agreed to when Louise told him of a transgression that one of the children performed. Those who purchased the home on Roddy Drive were completely shocked and disgusted with the way the home looked. The carpet was caked with filth and grime. There were stains on the wall they believed might be feces. This was in an appalling state and redoing the interior would take a lot more than some new carpet and a coat of paint. Louise was a horrible stay-at-home mother. If the activity didn't directly affect her day-to-day -day desires, she didn't partake in it. The family lived in filth, and not once was their home clean. Now that raises some questions on the Robinetti visits. What did the home look like? And I've asked this question a hundred times to myself, and I can't find it. I can't figure out what it looked like when Elizabeth lived with him. I can't figure out what it was like when Phyllis and, you know, Louise's sisters came to visit. Did the house get clean? Was it presentable? 
Did it smell of garbage and feces and dirty diapers were strewn out everywhere? Or was the home presentable during the visits? Did Louise tell the story even more by presenting them with an immaculate home? All of these questions are right there at the forefront of my mind, and I can't find the answer, and it's driving me nuts. Because you would think if Phyllis brings her daughters to her oldest daughter's home, and you walk in, and it looks like the photos of this house looked, you wouldn't have something to say, you know what I mean? You would step up and be like, whoa, this is disgusting, and we've got to get it clean, because this is, they're going to come and take your children away from you. That's how bad this is. Or once they cut things off with everybody, the house just became disgusting. And, and Louise didn't care to fix it up. Dave didn't make her clean anything. They did not make their children clean anything. If you changed a diaper on the kitchen counter, the diaper stayed on the counter. You didn't throw it away. That I mean, the trash can is way over there, and it's overflowing with trash anyways. So just leave it there. Somebody will take care of it eventually. That is what these homes look like that David and Louise would live in. They were absolutely disgusting. They would welcome their seventh child on July 27th of 1999. Her name was Janetta Betty. The family would make her announcement in the papers for, and this would be the last one they would make. Again, furthering severing off those ties from the children to the outside world. You can't think that, you know, because of the amount of malnutrition and neglect and abuse and things weren't being taken care of properly, they weren't fed properly, they weren't, uh, you know, they, these children had permanent damage to their growth and to their development, both physically and, and cognitive. And it was starting to become apparent in the photographs. They would send off every year or so that Louise had a child. So they needed to stop sending those in before somebody started asking questions. With their very fresh newborn daughter, the family moved to Rio Vista, Texas on Hill Country Road. This was about 45 miles south of Fort Worth and was what we here in Texas call the country. The nearest neighbors were maybe a mile or more away. Each home was surrounded by acres, acres of land. Some families farmed that land. Some raised livestock. It was a community of people who mostly kept to themselves, except for families who have children. And when a family comes around that has children that are the same age as your children, it's an exciting time and you want to get to know them. Friends were born from moments like this. What should have been some of the best childhood memories were not. They were filled with rules and regulations that needed to be followed. The new home and land meant that David and Louise also took ownership out of a natural gas well. This gas well paid them $577.92 a month in royalties. 
So essentially their home paid for itself. And they would live here for a, a long amount of time. Neighbors across the road and down a ways had two children that were about the same age of the three older Turnpin children. And this is when the neighbors on Hill Country Road uh, begin noticing how weird the family is. The children were allowed to play together. However, they were instructed they were not allowed to say their names. They were not allowed to talk about their mother and father. They were not to speak about the events that occurred inside the four walls of the home. They could not talk about anything personal, basically. And the neighboring children learned that if they paid close enough attention, they could kind of pick up on what, what each child's name was and maybe find out, you know, the names of their new friends. The children often played together and learned what topics would cause the Turnpin children to shut down. If they asked about their parents, they would shut down. If they asked about school, they would shut down. The oldest kids would go in the home sometimes and those neighborhood children would follow them in, but they were not allowed to go past the kitchen or dining room. Seeing as how many people living along this gravel road neighborhood had, fan had animals, it wasn't abnormal for the Turpins to have animals in the house. And it wasn't outside of the normal to see that maybe an animal had an accident. So there was species in the house. It, the house smelled, but the kids couldn't really identify what that smell was like. And seeing as how they were only allowed in the kitchen and dining room, they never went to the children's bedrooms and they never went to any other part of the home. Even though the neighborhood kids were allowed to come into the family home, the Turpin children were not allowed to even walk in front of the neighboring children's home. When they would come close to the house, the Turpin children would just simply stop, turn around, and go back the way they came. If there was ever a time they needed to go past the home, they would walk completely out of the way, down a pasture, across a hill, just to not walk in front of this house. It was all in an effort to keep them out of trouble with their parents. If the children played together, it had to almost exclusively happen in front of the Turpin family home. This was something that I found out of the normal for David and Louise to allow. It is almost too normal for the children to um, play with neighboring children. That's almost too normal for them. But with the strict set of rules of, you know, they're not allowed to say their name. They're not allowed to talk about their family. They're not allowed to talk about what's going on in home. Maybe that was what allowed these two to say, you know what? Yes, let's let them play with the kids. You know what I'm saying? That is until something happened and the oldest children would get in trouble for it. So what had happened was the Turpin children were outside playing one day and the moms, the mom of the kids they played with in the neighborhood saw them 
And she decided to take matters in her own hand because their kids weren't finding out really anything about this family or the children they played with. So she saw them outside and she decided, you know what, I'm going to go talk to them. So she walks up to Jennifer and another one of the children and she asked, you know, what's your names? And Jennifer started to respond with, quote, maybe if you pay attention, you'll figure it out, end quote. Her sister became extremely panicked and shut her down mid-sentence. How could she put them in danger of being punished by breaking the rules David and Louise had already laid out? Well, Louise found out about the mom questioning the, you know, her kids. And she decided that her children would no longer be allowed to play with their friends. When these kids came to the door and asked if her children could come out to play, Louise screamed at them that it was their mother's fault before slamming the door in their face. From here on out, the children would sleep and stay inside during the day and at night the house would illuminate with every light on and shining through the drapes every once in a great while those living on hill county road um, would hear the children playing outside at night but the occurrence of that was few and far between the neighbor children would often try to see if the turpin children could come out to play so they would go over and try knocking on the door and they wouldn't get an answer. So they would peek through the window and sometimes they would see little baby Janetta laying in her playpen crying. And it seemed as though she was the only one there. The only thing, only times that the neighborhoods um, noticed David or Louise leaving the home was when David went to work. And when Louise would load the children in her minibus and go to town for groceries or errands or whatever. Because so much had been cut away from these children's lives, the abuse was ramping up. At this point, they were strictly only bathing once a year. They were allowed to wash their hands and they were allowed to brush their teeth. But they could not wash above the wrist. If above the wrist was ever clean, they would become in, they would be in trouble with mother and father because they would know the children had been playing in the water. And the punishment for playing in the water was for the suspect, which is what Louise would call them, to be chained up. Sometimes this was for hours and sometimes this was for days at a time. And even though the Turpin family claimed the Pentecostal faith, the religion itself had very little to do with the way David and Louise were ruling in their home. Inside the living room of the Hill County Road home, David converted it to a classroom. Inside, there was desks and chalkboards and different things that they would need in order to do school. Only there wasn't any schoolwork being done. What they were learning was scripture and then the interpretation of that scripture. They were not allowed to interpret it in, in their own way. No, it had to be done for them. Jennifer was the only one who had ever had a public education, and it was only third grade level. So she would step up and teach children, the other children, 
the the little things that she could remember like a little bit of reading there was a little bit of spelling there was basic alphabet but as far as you know as for anything else really goes no kid technically had an education level past the third grade and if it wasn't for Jennifer teaching them I'm not sure that they would have any educational uh, training because all the all school planning was school planned and based around the Bible and how David wanted them to interpret it. So, you know, whatever. They weren't teaching their children. They were molding them into robots. The malnutrition of the children were starting to make its permanent marks on their development. Um, they stunted their growth. They had a lot of cognitive shortcomings when it came to concrete or abstract thinking. The girls were so tiny that they did not menstruate. These children were below the bottom fifth percentile in children of their age. Others were so malnutrition they weren't even on the chart. Many questions arose surrounding the depth of the malnutrition going on with the children and when it started to become pretty severe at this point in life. In November of 2000, Louise and David welcomed another child. This child would go on to be the person to save her siblings from the life they were living. She knew that they deserved better, and she called 911. Her name, Jordan Elizabeth Turpin. By this point, David had decided he was going to start dabbling in farming, so he purchased some cows, some chickens, some pigs, and some goats. And David's pigs were notorious for getting out and getting into other people's properties. David would be called and he would go get them, lock them back up, and they would get back out again. They were in search of food because they were being starved. These are 300-pound pigs starving, and they were big enough to do something about it. Next, David bought one of those very large dumpsters that you see on like construction sites, and they pulled it into the front yard of the home. And from there, the house would empty the trash into that. Within years, the dumpster began to overflow, and there was no sign that David was going to empty it anytime soon, and it stunk. And it, it developed a huge fly problem in the area. It was just not good at all. Smelled horribly. In the summer of 2001, four-year-old Joy Turnpin was bit in the face by the family's dog. 911 was called. Paramedics came out to rush her to Cook's Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, where she would receive stitches. Not one question was raised about joy and the care she was receiving at home during this entire time. Since the dog was not vaccinated, it was removed from the Turpin family home and put down. Hill County Sheriff's Office had the reported incident but never did anything with it. You can't help but wonder what would have happened had David and Louise been stopped right here in 
this moment. David and Louise Turpin went from joyous parents to cruel and, and evil as their family grew. Overly strict is what family thought of Louise and her family with each visit, but in reality, they were instilling very harsh rules that were to be followed no matter what. When baby sister comes to join the family for the summer, she witnessed the beginning of the abuse and neglect that the Turpin children suffered. Each child brought forth more rules and punishments, most of which were corporal at best. David was grooming those he fathered into being his followers. He didn't want questions or hesitation. Louise wanted the money that came with her being second in command. Somewhere along the journey of being a parent multiple times, Louise lost the dream to have a big family and replaced it with having complete and total rule over someone. Each child she grew with power and the love of David allowed her to ruin the family's finances time and time again. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we flip through the births of each of the children born to David and Louise. The story is hard, and I know that the details are difficult to listen to, but stick with me here. Child abuse is on the rise across the world, and unfortunately, each case where child abuse is the main crime, we can learn from it. It teaches us the signs that may have otherwise gone unnoticed and let a crime like this one happen again. So if you know or suspect of child abuse, please call your local police department, or you can call one 800 422 Four four five three. Join me next week as we go even further into what was going on behind closed doors of the Turpin family home. As always, I leave you with one last line. Power does not corrupt men. Fools, however, if they get into a position of power, corrupt power. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>